to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. And now your host, Sonia Esther Sultani. Welcome to the Jury Connoisseur Podcast. It's a podcast for people in the jewelry industry that want to learn more, and it's also for jewelry lovers who just want to expand their knowledge. Here we talk about everything that has to do with vintage and antique jewelry. I'm your host, Sonia Esther Sultani. I'm the editor of Rapapo. I edit a monthly magazine for the trade that covers everything from mining to retail. I'm also editing an online publication called Jewelry Connoisseur, like this podcast, where you can learn about estate jewelry, contemporary design, and gemstones. And I'm curating an Instagram account, Rappaport Jewelry Pro, in which we try to educate as much as possible our listeners who are all enthusiastic about jewelry. I love to learn about jewelry. I love to have exciting guests who tell me more and I hope that by the end of this episode you also feel you've discovered something new about the fascinating world of jewelry. Today my guest is Marie-Cécile Cisamolo, who is a specialist and director of jewelry at Sotheby's Geneva. Marie-Cécile started her career at Christie's in London and working at Christie's Geneva until last year in November. And today Marie-Cécile is going to share a passion for retro jewelry. The most iconic pieces were so interesting in terms of political and economical contexts and also what you should have in your collection and will tell us why it's a good time to buy it at auction. Good morning, Marie-Cécile, who's joining us from Geneva. How are you today? Good morning. I'm great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So I know you're a specialist in uh, retro jewelry and you love retro jewelry. Since you've been like exposed to so many beautiful jewels of all periods, what's so special about retro for you? Yeah, it's true. Along my career, there's been a few periods of jewelry I fell in love uh, with, starting from Victorian when I was working in London, and then obviously Art Deco, because who never falls in love with Art Deco, you know? When I arrived in Geneva in 2015, I think, it just hit me. And uh, the reason was I fell upon this book called Jewels from the 40s and 50s by Melissa Gabardi. And I read it and it's just impacted me so much because I love when jewels work with the political and economical context of uh, the world. And it's been that ever since. I have to say, though, recently, the 70s, I've stolen a piece of my art, but that's for another conversation. We'll invite you for another podcast on the 70s jewels if you want. <laughs> but back to the retro. So how, how did you start and when did you start the, the whole period? Like you say, you know, and especially in this political context. Yeah, so retro jewelry is associated with the World War II. Personally, I see it from like the mid-30s all the way to the end of the 50s for some jewels. You know, obviously it's impacted by the war, but I think the war had long-lasting effects in Europe, as we know. Europe was the main center for creating jewelry. So I think I'm comfortable with it going all the way to, you know, 1959, depending on the style of the jewel. And where were the main influence? Where did uh, jewelers wanted to move from the art deco that was dominating the scene until then? Well, what I find interesting is that they didn't want to move. It just was imposed upon them because the world completely changed. And so... What happened? Obviously, you know, 1933, change of power in Germany and invasion. Europe gets into the war. And what happened then? What do they do? Well, they bomb buildings and they bomb workshops, of course. And what happens when the war starts? People have to go and fight. And who goes to fight? Men. And who worked in workshops in France, for example, or Italy? Men. So there's a change. Nothing can stay the same. So what we see happening is a completely different way of treating jewelry. Before, you see, you know, a high value, very 
you know, the nice people from the world all around, um, you know, from America, everything travel to Europe to buy their diamonds at Cartier's and all that. And suddenly no one travels. There's no more material. What do we do? And that's when it gets super interesting for me because what do we see happening in the ritual period? Suddenly we get to yellow gold because platinum is rare. Platinum is expensive. So it's not as available during the war. Uh, something interesting to note, and I didn't know that before I started to read about retro, is that if you wanted from 1940 in France, if you wanted a jewelry jewel made of precious material, you had to bring the material yourself. So you had to bring the gold, they melted it for you, and then they created what you wanted. But when they melted it for you, the state took 20% of that. So you had to have you know, quite an amount of gold or already nice jewels in order to make what you wanted in the 40s. So obviously, the production of jewelry lowers. Now, how do we create jewelry that is awesome without a lot of precious material because it's the basis of jewelry? Well, you tweak it a little bit. So yellow gold is less expensive, so we use yellow gold. But if you add a little bit of copper to yellow gold, it becomes pink gold. If you had, you know, a little bit of silver, it becomes, you know, gray gold. And so you see these changes in the nuances of the color of the jewels. So you have red, rose, green, yellow, white, gray gold, instead of having mainly platinum. So that's something that attracts me to the eye because I love yellow gold. And um, also, it's just such a clear-cut way of defining, you know, the period. You see, immediately, you go from nice straight lines, diamond, full of stones, jewels, and boom, suddenly you've got a little yellow flower spray with a few stones here and there. I think what you like in the period is, uh, I found it really interesting, is the inventiveness and the innovations that is really, the shortage of goods and materials has actually helped people flourish in different styles. Exactly. That's what's so exciting about it. That's what I love. Uh, it's like, it's so simple to go to a shop in the 30s or the 20s and get a long, nice bracelet full of diamonds because they have the stock and people have the money to pay for it as well. But when creators of jewelry in the 40s during the war wanted to do something extraordinary where they just didn't set it with a 15 karat gold conda, you know, diamond, they had to go and play with the gold. And we see so many inventions at that time, as it's often the case, when people struggle, they get inventive. That's survival, you know, in a way. So Tubogaz starts, um, which comes from tubogaz, which means gas tube, uh, which was the way the, you know, the, the gas was transported at the time. So you see tubogaz, and it gives this all flexibility and awesomeness to the jewels. And you see also the gold becomes plated, you know, it becomes reeded, it's used as pompons. Uh, it's, it's all about the material. What do they have in their hand? A little bit of pink gold, basically yellow gold mixed with copper, and they created you know, magic with it. And then for fun, they added some stones to it, what they could put their hands on. And there again is a big change because where do we get our stones? You know, we get the stones from Colombia, from Sri Lanka, from, you know, all those faraway countries. Well, during the war, the boats are not really used for that. So what do we do? We use synthetic stone because that's all we have. And again, you see here the madness that big, important brand that would have never be seen probably using synthetic stones 10 years earlier, use big, you know, synthetic stones in their high jewelry, what was called high jewelry at the time, which is not high jewelry of the 30s, but in high jewelry, you know, pieces. And um, so that's the first thing you're taught at the catalogue or specialist is that when you have a jewel from the 40s, just double check because there's a high chance all the stones are going to be synthetic. So that's the way I learned about that. And I thought, 
well, that's outrageous at first. You know, why would you put synthetic sapphire on a nice Cartier bracelet? Well, then you look into it and it actually makes sense. Yeah. The gemologist in you could calm down if uh, once you know the <laughs> combined with your historian. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, nah, okay, that's fine. I'll take that. But this little pieces of, you know, as we talked about the pink gold, how pink gold now is so sexy or was at least until a couple of years ago and pink gold costs more money when you want a Cartier Love Bank gold in yellow gold, it's more expensive in pink gold. And you think about it, actually, it's less valuable intrinsically because it's yellow gold mixed with something else. But then you go back to the 40s and you understand and you see synthetic stone and you think about the contest. And again, you understand. And it's just that historian in me loves it so much. Where were the stones that were the most replicated as synthetics during that time? For sure, the four big ones. Diamonds were still used, but in very small, you know, very little uh, small diamonds. Uh, usually they're, they're, they're real. And, but sapphire, emeralds and rubies. Um, if you see any cocktail watch or cocktail ring from the 40s, you know, 80% chances they're synthetic. Doesn't make them less appealing. No, of course, because the design the, the, is still there. But what are the other stones that maybe are considered semi-precious that were also used during that time when they were moving from the big three? So uh, we see appearing, and if I'm completely honest, semi-precious stone also appeared preponderant or very uh, intensely in another period that I'm in love with, which is Art Nouveau. That's, again, another conversation. But uh, you would have very rarely seen big art deco jewels set with a lot of diamond and a topaz in the middle or an amethyst or an aquamarine. We all think about that one example, which is the famous Cartier aquamarine, you know, tiara that was worn at the end of the 30s. And um, suddenly they were everywhere. Brooches with nice topaz, nice aquamarines, nice tourmalines pop up everywhere. And another reason that appears to me is that not only, you know, again, the resourcefulness of the jewels is to want to create something, but don't have the big three or don't want to use synthetic and go to semi-precious, but also what were they trying to represent by using so many colors? Well, happiness, you know, a little bit of a light spirit in the middle of all this darkness in society. And you see spray of flowers coming up and you see little round shapes instead of the straight geometrical lines of the Art Deco period. Suddenly, everything is more soft. You know, you're looking for you know, lightness, a soft touch in the middle of the madness. And that's what appeals to me as well. And a little bit of softness in, a, in this horrible time. And how about the big houses? You mentioned Cartier, but were they really big during uh, the retro period? Well, surprisingly, no. And there's a few houses that come to my mind when I think about the retro period. And one of the first is Boucheron, as we know, is a long established, you know, house, uh, Place Vendôme in Paris, the first one to get there. But when you think about Art Deco, you don't see many Boucheron pieces, but suddenly in the retro period, they explode. Uh, they create designs that are just to die for, especially as I was talking earlier about pompon. So they have the whole long bracelet with a belt kind of design as well. They pop up with this. And There's, I think I sent you the example, there's a boucheron bangle set with sapphire with curved line that just made me want to die when I saw it. And there's a great story about that because I, I saw it and I was just like, mm. you know, I love it. It's, it's in the auction. And I called one of my clients who um, still has it in her collection. And I said, look, you need to get this. This is one of the most important pieces of retro jewelry that I've ever seen. And it's up for grab at auction. And she wasn't that into retro at the time. But but uh, luckily, we managed to get it for the low estimate, which is amazing. And it's still in our collection. And I think, I hope she values it. So that's nice. So Boucheron is a big house. Van Cleef and Arpels. You can't get around Van Cleef and Arpels. The Ludo, 
bracelet is literally an example of what retro is. It is yellow gold most of the time. It is certi étoilé, so star setting, I suppose, which is a way of making diamonds look bigger. So you, you empty the gold in a star shape and then you put a weeny diamond in the middle, but it looks bigger. And it's also created as a belt. You wear it as a belt on your arm. So it's literally a retro 101 and people go crazy for them because they're so easy to wear. So Van Cleef and Arpels is big. Um, another house that disappears later, just after the retro in the 50s, is uh, Mauboussin, Robert Offer and Mauboussin. They created the most amazing retro jewels. And of course, I said Cartier was not too big on it, but there's one creation that they kind of rocked and defied the retro period. Um, that I suppose we have to talk about is the bird. The Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast will be back after this break. The Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast is brought to you by Rappaport Jewelry Auctions. Rappaport Jewelry Auctions offers centralized monthly auction markets that provide sellers with liquidity for their jewelry at fair market value prices and give buyers an opportunity to purchase estate jewelry at competitive market prices. Rappaport's auctions consist of unique estate, vintage, and signed jewelry, expertly curated and incredibly priced. With auctions held each month, there are always excellent buying and selling opportunities. Visit us at jewelryauctions.rapaport.com and register to participate in our upcoming auctions. So tell us about this bird because we go back to retro and politics there. Exactly. That's also one. I'm, I'm a huge history geek. I love it. So That's also one of the stories that got me hooked on retro. And it's well known, so I'm sure you guys already heard about it, but it's the story of the bird inside and the bird outside the cage. So let me take you back to Paris during the occupation. So um, not very sexy, not very fun, but you had this lady, jewelry designer. She's called Jeanne Toussaint. She works with Peter Le Marchand, and they create together a bird brooch. And again, it goes with the retro idea of softness, animals, soft curves, and a nice little bird. The bird is depicted within a cage, a gold cage, and he has his head down, his beak is closed, and that's it. And it's just, you know, it's just a bird in a cage. Obviously, it's been seen by the Gestapo as a symbol of protest, I suppose, against the occupation in Paris. Jean Toussaint gets taken in for interrogation to discuss this as a gesture of protest and what's going to happen to her. She gets out by saying that it's just a rossignol. What are you talking about? She's just creating, you know, little bird brooches for her clients. And with the help of Coco Chanel, who was uh, close to the Germans at the time in Paris, she escapes. And that's the end of that story. And then 1945, V-Day in Paris. And a few days later, what appears in the Cartier boutique in Rue de la Paix? A bird in a cage. But the cage door is open. The bird has his head high, his beak is open, he's singing, and he's made of colors that are red, blue, and white in lapis, coral, and diamond, and uh, that's called l'oiseau libéré. So it's these species at auction appear very rarely, and when they do, they go, they go crazy because it's just a symbol of freedom in a jewel, and it's not very valuable. Again, it goes with retro. It's gold. It's semi-precious stone. And it's just a bird. It's really small. It's about three or four centimeters. And people are just buying a symbol. It's, it's wonderful. But what a symbol. What a symbol. Yeah. And I think Jean Toussaint was very brave to do that in 1941 when the 
She had German soldiers passing in front of the quartier window every single day. And what about the other symbols? Because I think these three colors that you mentioned, the patriotic colors, are actually quite present during that time as well. Exactly. Lots of houses made patriotic jewels. One of the ones that is a symbol on the retro period now, it's called the tank bracelet. And it represented the tank track to, you know, go closer to the war with what you were. And if any tank bracelet now is, is super sexy and everyone wants one, I'm not sure they understand where it comes from. And one of my absolute favorite is the Hawaii collection from Van Cleef and Appels. It was created in 1939. So bang on the hardest period of the war, you know. And it comes under various variations, brooches, bracelet, rings, earrings, mostly brooches. Again, that's something very retro. And I saw once when I was working at Christie's, it came from a consigner in Italy. And it came and for, I think it was 30 or 40,000. And it was a bracelet completely 3D. I just, I lost my mind over it. So it's just a yellow gold bracelet. And in it are little forget-me-not flowers in red, sapphire, rubies, and diamonds. But all of them, so that it looks like you're wearing, you know, a 3D, basically, wreath of flower around your, around your wrist. And I was discussing at the time with Vanessa Cron, who used to work with, uh, with me, and she said it's Hawaii. And I was just like, that's weird. Why is it called Hawaii? And she was like, well, have a look. 1939, the flowers are called forget-me-nots. The flowers are red, blue, and white, and it's created in France. And yet, the name is the furthest thing you can think about for the war, which is Hawaii. And I think it's, for me, the way for Van Cleef and Appels to not end up in Jan Toussaint's situation at the Gestapo and created something that was like, no, it's little flowers from away. And it's the most amazing jewel I think I've ever had in my hand from the retro period is this. It ended up selling for, I think, over $200,000. and Again, what's the value in it? Of course, it's Van Cleef and Appels. It's just a little bit of gold, teeny-weeny rubies, sapphires, and diamonds. And the value is in the symbol and the design, which is what retro is all about. Absolutely. And I was wondering, because you mentioned this client of yours and his Boucheron bracelet earlier and prices at auction, how does retro jewelry do at auction? Oh, that's one of the saddest things, <laughs> the saddest uh, fact about this period is that no one loves it just as I do, <laughs> I feel. <laughs> Lots of people are fan of uh, Retro Jewels, but a few years ago, I created a section of Retro Jewels in the Magnificent Jewels auction in Geneva. And the top lot of that section was the Boucheron bangle that I spoke about. And the rest were smaller pieces, you know, mix of pink and yellow gold, not signed by the big houses because there's not many. And it just crashed. No one wants it. I just, I don't get it. I'm the only one buying retro jewelry. So I just love it. I have a few pieces myself that I buy at, in local auction house. Luckily, I suppose it allows me to buy them. Otherwise, I couldn't. So actually, that's a good investment. If you're a dealer today, it's the right time to buy retro jewelry. And then, you know, it will become more popular after this podcast, I'm sure already. Uh, <laughs> why don't people see it? I don't get it. It's amazing. But it's funny because you have literally two you have the high retro jewelry, and then you have the normal retro jewelry that people used to wear every day at the time that no one cares about, apart from me and a few other geeks, I suppose. I'm a bit sad because I love mid-century and retro jewelry as well. So, you know, that would be my, my go-to period. The big, bold volume, the, the nice, you know, like it makes a statement, but you can actually wear it every day as well. 
Exactly, because there's not big stones on it, like big cocktail ring, the nice cocktail wristwatch, you know, it's just, for me, it's just amazing. I think nothing dresses more a black dress than a bold yellow gold necklace with no stones on it. So I have a competition in you now. Luckily, we don't live in the same country as we won't fight for the same lot. But tell me about actually what's coming up to, for auction. Uh, do you have any pieces that you've spotted um in a like so the so, sells wherever in the world, either in Geneva or any other other places? Yeah. We have the obviously I work in Geneva, so the Mac Jewels auction in Geneva is my auction, if I may say so. Uh, even though I didn't consign these pieces. There is a Ludo bracelet by Van Cleef and Arfels that's coming up and it's gonna be interesting to see how much it goes for. It's about thirty to fifty thousand. And there's also, and it's something we haven't spoken about, but it's been covered by Vanessa in one of the first podcasts uh, with you, is a Belperon brooch. Because Suzanne Belperon in Paris, obviously she created jewels. And Boivin Belperon created amazing jewels during the retro period. And there's a brooch from her from 1950 that is literally a yellow gold curl with a line of emerald. And the yellow gold is textured. So it is, again, check, check, check. Retro, uh, which excites me. So I'm looking forward to seeing this. What was the estimate for this piece? So just I know, but you know, in this parallel life. I think it's about 30 to 50. I have to double check. Mm. The auction is, is coming up, but we're closing the catalog now. So I have my head full of other jewels. And tell me, what, what would be in your ideal jewelry box? Your ideal box. Mine has a bell perron for sure. Oh, a few, but what, what's in yours? Well, in mine is that Hawaii bracelet I told you about. For many reasons. And I have to say that Boucheron Bengal is there as well. But but if it was my dream jewelry box, I'd have to because I'd wear one on each wrist. And it's such a statement. But you know what's amazing about my, my job is that I see and I fall in love with jewels every six months. And so those two stuck in my mind. I have a few others, even, you know, just stones because they're just old and chipped and have a little black inclusion under the table but i just love those because they're you know they can't replicate that you can have a three carat d flawless can you have an old g slightly brownish with a black inclusion no there's only one if you like it it's yours and that's the uniqueness of it so this season those two after speaking with you and that diamond that we'll talk about when you come to geneva hopefully to see it and what it was going to be in my jewelry box next season i don't know i'm looking forward to finding out what we gather for the sales and have there also i'll have to put it there is my wedding bands and my engagement ring because otherwise my husband would kill me <laughs> beautiful <laughs> what is Do you think the, the retro jewel that is so timeless that people would really, really need to, to know about? Another one that speaks to me is the Passepartout set by Van Cleef and Arpels again. Represent all of retro. It's two bouquet chain. It can be worn as a belt, as a brooch, as a necklace, as a bracelet. And then you have on top of it a watch, cocktail watch made with yellow sapphire and blue sapphire. Again, you know, yellow sapphires before the retro period, not too sexy. The blue sapphires are usually very light. So again, not too sexy before the retro period. And it's just, you know, it's just everything. That's so nice. You really made us dream with all these beautiful pieces you described. I don't know if you listen to this podcast and haven't fallen in love with retro, I don't know what we need to do. <laughs> and if you want to join the retro geek clubs, just, you know, contact me. I talk about it all day. Fantastic. I want to be in. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marie-Cécile. I really, uh, it was so enjoyable. And I hope our listeners have, have learned more about this period, which I personally found fascinating and uh, that you've highlighted in such an eloquent way for us. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was lovely. And it just drew me back to a really nice pieces. And yeah, 
I'm looking forward to speaking about the 70s with you soon. <laughs> Great, you're on. <laughs> Thanks for having joined us on this latest episode of the Rappaport Jury Corner Sub Podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google, and YouTube. And if you like this podcast, leave us some little stars. Subscribe to make sure that you don't miss any episode. And you have more information as well on juryconnoisseur.net about this episode and many, many other subjects on estate and vintage jury. Mm-hmm.